0: entitled what is the story of the bible that's our subject for this particular session and i am going to read from first chronicles 29 and verse 11 and 12 here in just a moment but i want to give just a brief review of where we have come from and i want to give you another definition of a worldview and this one comes from david noble in understanding the times and here's what he says A worldview is the framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. It is any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relations to God and the world. Whether conscious or subconscious, every person has some type of worldview— A personal worldview is a combination of everything that you believe to be true. And it becomes the driving force behind every emotion that you filter, every decision that you make, and every action that you undertake. And it affects your response to every area of life, whether it's uh, philosophy or science or theology, anthropology, economics, law, politics, art, social order, everything is governed by your biblical uh, worldview if you're a Christian. A biblical worldview answers six key questions. We went over these last week in review of the first session, and that is origin, how did it all begin? Identity, what does it mean to be human? We talked a lot about the Imago Dei. Uh, Chaos, which is what went wrong. That's when sin entered into the world. Purpose is why are we here, and that's to glorify God. Morality is how are right and wrong determine the answer being God's Word and then destiny what happens to people when they die uh, And what's the ultimate destination of of people? Then we followed with the doctrines of general revelation and special revelation In general revelation God has revealed himself through general truths in nature and in it God's existence and his power can be clearly seen The design, the order, the wonder of creation speak to the existence of a powerful creator. The doctrine of special revelation is that God has revealed himself through the living word, Jesus, and through the written word, which is also living, we talked about that, uh, but through the written word, the Bible, to reveal specific truths about God and specifically to point us to how to be saved and how to be at peace with God. Now, this evening we're thinking about the biblical narrative in terms of a meta-narrative. Now, you may have heard this whole concept of meta-narrative. It, it got kind of popular a few years ago, and maybe it's not used as commonly, even as I heard it used a few years ago. But it's basically an overarching account of interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences So I would say that a meta-narrative in its simplest form is the big story. It's like the big picture. It's the overarching story from the beginning to the end. And how do we know what we know? We know it because we have the meta-narrative of the Bible. And the meta-narrative of the Bible is the overarching story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And while we know the Bible is comprised of 66 different books which collectively tell the story of these things... It's one cohesive message uh, with the thread starting at creation, then into the fall, then redemption and restoration. So the Bible covers a lot of topics. And there's a, several different types of literature. It spans centuries from when it was written and given to us. Yet it is one grand story, and the central message is about what God has done. So we're going to think about this in the little bit of time that we have in this particular session we're going to think about this in terms of four major plot movements four major parts of this meta narrative this story uh, that the scripture presents now admittedly there's going to be some overlap on this because we've already talked about creation and chaos and how that fits in uh, but now we're we're distilling it a little bit and we're bringing it back to these broad sweeping movements of history and time as communicated in the bible and I think it 'll help us uh, unfold it, but then also put it in perspective for our own application first chronicles twenty nine and verse eleven and twelve says "Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all." and in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone the first movement in the narrative is that the story of the Bible begins with creation now we've come back to this subject once again but if you'll go back and do a study sometime uh, of the references in the Bible to the creative power of God it is replete with reference after reference pointing back to what God has done. And there's also a, a more specific technique that you'll find in the scripture, not just a repeating of all that God has done in creation, but there's this building narrative of what God has done throughout time and history. And you see that repeated again and again. Now part of the reason that that's the case is God wanted to communicate that to us with emphasis so that we could have an improper perspective. But it was also in part the way that they learned. They would learn by repetition. They would learn by uh, repeating things. And, and uh, they would learn by telling those stories in more of an oral type culture. And it helped them to really put into perspective all the things that God had done. So we begin here again because of the foundational significance of this. And we're basically asking the question, where did everything come from? Well, the answer in Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the account of God's creation of all things. We've talked about how God created all things ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. He didn't take materials like we do and, and build something. You know, He didn't take the stack of lumber and then build the house. He made the tree that would make the lumber that would make the house. So everything from start to finish, his hand is in it, and he's the one who began it and he did so by his spoken word. His crowning work was the creation of human beings made in his own image. And I would say that the story begins with God and not with us. God is, he has always been, and he will always be. Now let me say an important word here about this whole idea of beginning with God and not with us. I think this is important. If you're going to regularly and faithfully share Your testimony with other people or you're going to take a basic gospel explanation like the three circles or a a one verse approach or whatever uh, it is that you identify with uh, and can communicate clearly uh, then I think it's important that you start with God, that there is a God, that there was a time when there was nothing except God, but he created all things as we know it and I've seen gospel presentations uh, one of the ones that i would point to some of you might be familiar with in a number of years past was the old gospel presentation called faith now faith is an acronym and it's and it's pointed toward forgiveness and getting to heaven obviously with the with the acronym Uh, but it doesn't start with the premise that there's a god to begin with or that we might be accountable to him or that we might be able to have a relationship with him that's very important in the era that we live in, especially because you have people who don't have a, a faith background at all. We have people who have never darkened the door of a the church. They've never been to a week of vacation Bible school. They've, they they don't know anything. They don't have any perspective. So if we start with this foundationally, then that'll help us in sharing the gospel as well. Uh, God is sovereign, and that means there's nothing that happens uh, by happenstance or if, just in a random nature from the perspective of God. Psalm 135 and verse 5 and 6 says, For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's never perplexed, uh, even as I prayed earlier. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 says, Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the whole earth. God is good in that he's trustworthy and he always acts with justice and mercy and with love. And he's the one who defines goodness. The psalmist said in Psalm 145 and verse 5, I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about the doctrine of creation? What I'm talking about when I talk about the doctrine of creation is what I think the biblical narrative is, in that God created in six literal 24-hour days. Now, this has been the dominant view in church history up until the last 150 years, probably. It's been the absolute dominant view of what people who would have held to orthodoxy held to, that, in fact, God created in six literal 24-hour days. Days and then, on the seventh day, of course, um, he rested and that's come to a point of many challenges in in the day that we live in because of the evolutionary system and uh, naturalism that we'll get to a little bit later on. Uh, but if we take the scripture for its plain meaning and as it's presented, then I think this what this is what we logically as well as biblically arrive at on day one, God created the the heavens, we would say generally. Uh, meaning everything beyond the earth and outer space. Um, God spoke light into existence, and he separated the light from the dark, and he named the light day and the dark night. On day two, God created the sky, and he placed it between the waters which were on the face of the earth and the precipitation that existed above the earth. This is what we would refer to as the atmosphere or the, or the firmament. Uh, the sky formed a barrier between water on the surface and the moisture in the air, And then day three, God created dry land and seas and plants and trees and continents and islands rise above the water. And the large bodies are referred to as the seas and the ground is referred to as the land. Day four, God created all the stars and the heavenly bodies. Uh, The first is the sun, of course, the primary source of light. And then the moon, uh, which reflects the sun. On day five, God created all life that lives in the water and, and the birds, and then finally on day six, God created all creatures on dry land and also created man. And on day seven, God rested not because he was tired, but to put in the principle of the Sabbath for all of humanity, for all of time. And even though we have liberty as New Testament Christians to determine when we're gonna observe and celebrate the Sabbath, that principle is human beings were not created to go 24/7 without any slack. We were intended to take a time out each week where we step back and where we worship and where we focus on God and I think that Sabbath principle is is uh, perpetual. Now, we don't want to believe in the 6-day 24-hour creation theory simply because it's traditional or historic. We want to believe it because it's true. And i would submit to you that what you believe about creation is important because it relates to your concept of inerrancy or the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of scripture it also speaks to the authority of the bible and let me just state it a little bit more directly if you cannot trust the bible in the first two chapters you cannot trust it in the remainder of the book if you cannot trust what the account is in the first two chapters, you can't trust the rest of the book. And obviously, you know that I believe you could trust the first two chapters as well as the rest of the book. But critics would point to this uh, in Genesis as a as a Hebrew myth, um, and in mythology, creation is often viewed as a struggle between the gods. And of course, that's the total opposite of what we believe with the sovereign God and much of our theology is based on the foundation of the creation account like a lot of it uh, more than 50 years ago francis Schaeffer wrote a piece entitled genesis in space and time and he asked a question he said what is the least we must make of genesis 1 through 11 as it relates to the rest of the bible Schaeffer was an apolo- was speaking from an apologetic standpoint and he's basically making the point look uh, there's like some fundamentals here that are non-negotiable. That w- We take these things away and we can't take anything else away and still say that we believe this account uh, to be true. But there are a number of things in the creation account that that point us to our hope in God. Uh, God comes first in it. I've already referenced that. Most creation myths portray the culture in question as the center of the universe. But in the Genesis account, God is and God remains the center of it all. You remember when Paul found himself evangelizing pagans in Acts chapter 17 in the city of Athens. He stresses that God is sovereign in all things and he doesn't need anything. Um, and that's the same emphasis that we would make now. Also, God spoke and his word was so powerful that he could call the universe into existence. I, I, you can't get over that. Like, if you can believe that God can speak and call creation into being, then you can believe that when you trust in Jesus Christ, he has the power to save you. These things go together. We we don't just pick and choose the parts that we like or we don't like. Uh, Marriage is also in the creation account, clearly, in Genesis 2. It's referenced by Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus clearly acknowledges that man... Uh, was created as male and female there is no more uh, applicable truth than that in this current setting that we're in but that's what he clearly teaches and then the doctrine of salvation depends on the existence of a literal person named adam in romans 5 and first corinthians 15 paul links our salvation with identification with adam and for, as in Adam, all die, so in also so in Christ, all will be made alive, so the human race is in a fallen state by virtue of being in Adam through the natural birth, but in the same way, those whom God has chosen for salvation are saved by virtue of knowing Christ in the spiritual birth, so there's a direct correlation: we are made for God and by God, and we are accountable to God. There's a major emphasis in the remainder of the Bible on the greatness of God as witnessed by his creation. And I won't go back and read a lot of passages right now, but you can go back to Psalm 8 and uh, Isaiah 40 and verse 12 and Isaiah 43 and verse 15 where he says, I'm the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So I think that the biblical account of creation should not be viewed as mythological or allegorical or representative, but rather as the historical record of what God has done. And I think that's our starting point. The majority of the church fathers who commented on the issue also weighed in on God creating in six 24 hour days. So we are in good company historically as well. Uh, Francis Bacon, the the founder of the scientific method, uh, he lived the late 1500s and early 1600s. He said, there are two books laid before us to study to prevent our falling into error. First, the volume of the scriptures which reveal the, the will of God, then the volume of the creatures which express his power. So what was, what was Bacon saying? He was saying there's special revelation, there's general revelation. And they both give the same witness to this creator that we worship. So the story of the Bible began with creation. But there is a second part of the movement of the story, and that is the story of the Bible took a turn with the fall. Now, unfortunately, we're all too familiar with this aspect, but I want to talk about it because it's significant theologically. You remember that Lucifer was created by God as a mighty angelic being, but he became prideful, and he wanted the place that was God's rightful place. There are two places in the Old Testament that refer to his rebellion, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. You know the end of the story was, "...fully one-third of the angels were banished from heaven with him." and they comprise the fallen angels who roam the earth today as demons. I think the scripture is is clear on that. Uh, Man and woman were created for fellowship with God, but they broke that fellowship. They broke it when they disobeyed God, when God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the punishment was death, uh, bringing a curse to all of creation, and now uh, we have to deal with that sin nature that is deserving of death. Now, admittedly, The account in Genesis does not specifically um, identify the serpent as Satan. Although Genesis 3 and verse 15 does in veiled terms, but the New Testament states it clearly. And the New Testament states it clearly in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. And it emphasizes that Satan's methods involve deceit, schemes, lies, and trickery. The description of him in the in the bible of crafty means shrewd and he uses what he knows to deceive and to trap now evidently before the fall the serpent was an attractive animal but if you think about it that's not all that surprising because now he parades as an angel of light it wouldn't be that tempting if he showed himself to us as he truly is or if we saw full-on Uh, The shocking nature of the evil that is represented behind him Uh, and part of the curse on him after the fall was that the serpent would be more cursed than all the other beasts would crawl on its belly and you see this unfolding of the temptation and the sin very clearly and I just want to go through this uh, fairly quickly Uh, Satan waited until Eve was alone and I want you to know that temptation is most dangerous when you're alone the devil's very good at isolating people. And if he gets you alone, maybe in a place or a situation or a time that you are more vulnerable than you are at other times, you're more likely to give in to the temptation. In that, he challenged the authority of God's Word. And he said, essentially, did God really say? Derek Kidner wrote that Satan's question smuggles in the assumption that God's Word is subject to to our judgment. Now church, this is a question that people are still asking today to twist things to their own way of thinking and their own way of living. Did God really say? Because if God didn't really say or if we can interpret it differently and we're the judge of scripture, then we can do what we want. And there are entire churches that are building themselves on that that well, yeah, that's but that's not what he really meant. You know, and, and there's all these Theological gymnastics that go with it. And at first, Eve defends God by correcting the statement, albeit wrongly, but Satan countered by reinterpreting God's reason behind the command. And the spiritual enemy wants you to question the the authority of the Word of God, because if he does that, he takes out the underpinnings of your worldview. Satan questioned God's character. He refers to God uh, as Elohim in the original language here, which emphasizes. God as the creator, but it avoids the personal covenant name, Yahweh. So Satan is trying to get Eve to think of God as impersonal. And the enemy often exaggerates to make God seem harsh. God had not said that they couldn't eat from any tree, but only that they couldn't eat from one tree. They could freely eat from everything else in the garden. But what does sin and temptation do? It it begins in our thinking and our doubts. And causes us to to question God. Satan wants us to think that God is withholding something good from us. This is the nature of temptation. It's the nature of idolatry. Somehow God He's just He just doesn't really want you to know. No, you're not gonna die. God knows when you eat it, your eyes are gonna be open, you're gonna be like God, you're gonna know good and evil. What does he want you to think? There are no consequences for sin. And he denies God's judgment. What's the big deal about eating a piece of fruit? And Satan promises a payoff without the pain in that they would know good from evil. And the temptation may look like a legitimate need. Could be food, could be sex, it could be comfort. Uh, The fruit was a delight to their eyes, according to the scripture. And he tempts with attractive things because he wants you to give in. And you've got to be aware of of the nature of these temptations. And in the fall of man, sin came into the world, corrupting humanity and the whole of creation, uh, causing all humans to be born into original sin. Now, I like in part what G.K. Chesterton had to say about this. He said, the fall is a view of life. It's not only the only enlightening, but the only encouraging view of life because it holds as against only real alternative philosophies, those of like Buddha, the Buddhist or the uh, Prometheans, that we have misused a good world and not merely been entrapped into a bad one. It refers evil back to the wrong use of the will and thus declares that it can eventually be righted by the right view, use of the will. Every other creed except that one is some form of surrender to fate. A man who holds this view of life We'll find it giving light on a thousand things on which mere evolutionary ethics don't even have a word to say. There are some very direct effects of the fall of man. The loss of righteousness, because sin entered in. Separation from God, because of their nakedness, they were ashamed, and they ran and hid from God. A cursed environment, there was a curse against the ground causing thorns and thistles, and the ground was destroyed. Physical death, Adam was told that he would return to the dust from which he was taken. And then obviously there's a covering here because the first death mentioned comes when God makes garments of skin after Adam of animal skin after Adam and Eve sinned. So here's the progression. Disobedience toward the Creator brought death and suffering. Man needed a covering for his sin. Man attempts... Uh, man's attempts at covering himself are inadequate only God can provide the covering that we need but the covering that we need requires the death of, of a substitute and of course that's where Jesus ultimately comes in because of the fall we're all under the curse of sin but this is a temporal consequence of sin to warn us of the eternal consequence the ultimate consequence of sin Now, there's a third movement here, and that is the story of the Bible points to redemption. So creation, the fall, and now redemption. Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to restore us. What did he come to restore us to? Fellowship with the Father, a relationship with God who created us. Jesus lived a sinless life. He offered himself as a sacrifice by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. And the gospel is that all who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and turn to Him in faith are made right with the Father and receive eternal life. The first promise of this is Genesis 3 and verse 15. That's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And God allows us to suffer the consequences of our decisions and our sins, but He provides salvation for the ultimate consequences. And this is the earliest promise of a Redeemer. It comes in the context of judgment. Satan already hated Eve, but God says there will be enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. God says he will bruise Satan on the head, and Satan would bruise the seed of the woman on the heel. That's obviously a reference to Christ, and when he was born, and ultimately his work on the cross. And everywhere else in the Bible, descent is marked through the male. But there's a significant theological point here Because here, it's the seed of the woman, not the man. So what's he ultimately pointing to? This is a veiled prophecy of the virgin birth. And it's because of the sin nature that Jesus would not have inherited that having not had Adam as his father. At the cross, Satan bruised Christ, but when Christ rose from the dead, the serpent was crushed on his head. Romans 3 and verse 24 says, We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here's what we have in redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. We have adoption into God's family. We have peace with God. We have eternal life. And to redeem means to buy out. It was used literally in those days of the purchasing of a slave's freedom. So when we are redeemed, our prior condition was that we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to our spiritual enemy. But God purchases our freedom and he sets us free in Christ because Christ has paid the penalty for our release and our redemption. Now the word ransom is also related to this and as it relates to the ransom that was paid Jesus paid for the release of from sin for us and the consequences of it and his death was for our life hebrews 2 and verse 17 says therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of god to make propitiation for the sins of the people so where do we find hope and where do we find redemption only in jesus and that brings us to the fourth and final movement of the story, and that is the story the Bible finds its pinnacle in restoration. Now a relationship with the Father is restored for those who put their faith in Jesus, but we know that the world is still lost in sin and suffering and the effects of sin. But Jesus is going to return someday, we await that, and He's going to restore all things. and evil will be judged, and creation will be restored. Believer, It will be made new. And believers will live with God in heaven forever. So I want you to understand that restoration is where the story of God is moving. Creation is a historical fact. It's the record of what God has done through his spoken word. The fall took place. We're still suffering the consequences of that because of original sin as well as sins of choice that we commit and then redemption is our being reconciled personally to God restoration is God making all things new and we have a great hope not only for personal salvation but for restoration in the future now I love what Tim Keller has to say here he says or has to write here he said the Bible is about God's creating the world the fall of man God's re-entry into history to create a people for himself and eventually about a new creation that emerges out of a marred and broken world through Christ. In a sense, restoration is the climax towards which God's story is moving. The link between the gospel and ultimate restoration is simple but is profound. God will create a new world, but the only way humans can participate in that new world is through what Jesus has done by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. In Christ, we have full access to all of God's blessings. Outside of Christ, we have access to none of his blessings. This restoration involves hearts and souls. Psalm 23 and verse 4, he restores my soul. This restoration includes relationships. Ephesians 2 and verse 14 says... For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. Of course, he was talking early about the Jews and the Gentiles and their relationships in the church. And then this restoration includes creation as well. And that's where the new heavens and the new earth come in. Uh, there's a promise based on the promise in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. And he says, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And he talks about this world as we know it being dissolved, burned with the heat uh, and uh, all of the works of God will be disclosed in that. And then Revelation 21 and verse 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So here's a concluding statement tonight. The story of the Bible is about what God has done and will do to glorify himself in the work of creation, redemption, and restoration. The story of the Bible is about what God has done and will do to glorify himself in the work of creation, redemption, and restoration.